When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hello, brave mamas. Are you ready to get the lowdown about everything women's health? I'm your host, Steph Thompson, and I can't wait to share our special guest with you today. Our next guest has lived all around the world. As a midwife, she's assisted women to birth their babies from literally in the jungles of the Solomon Islands all the way through to rural Australian communities. Bernadette's own story has organically led her to have this level of passion for supporting other women in this pelvic health space. So I thought it was pretty fitting to just grab a cup of Madame Flavor's organic mints for this raw and real chat. By the end of this episode, I hope you're feeling more confident to seek some help if you're experiencing any level of incontinence and or prolapse symptoms. Welcome, Bernadette. It's so lovely to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me here. <laughs> let's, let's just call it as it is, right? We are both working from home in lockdown. I have two children locked in a bedroom with my husband and a bag of Alan's lolly snakes. You have your husband with your two young children somewhere. No, it's not even a husband. Book. I've hired a babysitter to come here oh, no. so that the kids could be away and Ben's just stormed in. So if you're just listening to this, we just started recording and we had to stop and start again because Banj came in and was like, chips. <laughs> chips. And now I'm like angry that that's happened. I'm just going to let it go. <laughs> yeah, mama, that's all you can do. And I know the mums listening right now will uh, resonate and be like, oh. yep, I'm glad you two are normal human beings. Beings yeah. with children and trying to work from home in lockdown. So it's all good. So you know much what? resilience and flexibility in if, the last 18 months. That yeah. Everyone listening to this has had to work from home. It's, it's taught yes. us a lot of good we, life lessons. And also totally. probably hear you. a lot of yell, more yelling in the house, but you know, that's fine yeah. too. <laughs> so mamas, we hear you, we see you. And if you hear our children, it's okay. It's We're fine. not going to stop yeah. again. We're just going to keep going. We're just going to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So B, who um, who were you before having these two little people in your world? I was just saying when we started before that I can't even remember because I was a, I was B without the mum title for a lot longer than I've been a mum. But it feels like the last five years of being a mum is all that I have been. <laughs> um, it's so consuming, and I you know you try and explain to your children things you did or what you were doing before you had them and they can't 
comprehend that you existed without them and then it all of a sudden becomes it feels like you don't but uh I was a midwife traveling the world and working in many different places I was a nomad really we moved like 13 times in six years we were constantly living everywhere so I grew up in New South Wales uh moved to the territory spent a lot a lot of time working as a midwife in both Darwin and Alice Springs and then remote Aboriginal communities um, wow. And then lived in the Solomon Islands on a tiny island that was like 10 kilometers in diameter. We had like no running oh water, gosh. no electricity. Built a leaf hut Whoa. with just like a chisel and a hammer, like, you know, cu- and from like cutting the trees down in the jungle, dragging them down the hill. Um, yeah, it was. Were you? Were you delivering babies in that jungle? I wasn't. No the women water? were, and I was catching them. So I have a real big issue with when people say, were you delivering babies? No, the women were giving birth, and I happened yes. to be there. But, yeah, they had an incredible hospital that the Japanese had built them um, wow. that was really out of place <laughs> on the island. Yeah, right. And then we would travel around to islands by boat to other islands that had, like, no facilities. And even though we had this incredible structure of a hospital we didn't even have like a doppler or anything to listen like we used a pinards to listen to heart rates and stuff so yeah we were there for a year and um and then we moved to melbourne and even before that i i lived in new york and um i studied sports psychology before i came midwife there was a huge there was so much to me i yeah was a marathon runner i traveled the world to do hikes like kokoda and Lots of hikes through like Central America, lots of volcanic. Yeah. I did really cool stuff. And now I sit in my trackies and I study with my two kids climbing on me. (laughs) But at the time, as you were traveling and being in New York and the Solomon Islands, I don't know if it was similar to you, but for me, I was doing all these amazing things, but always wishing to be a mum. Always. That's like, oh, but that's going to be my end goal. Nah, (laughs) that wasn't me. I didn't want kids. No, no, it wasn't. And and I and I used to really feel like there was something wrong with me for not feeling like that. And and now I don't. I just I could have very easily not had children. We fostered uh, kids when we lived in Alice Springs, and I was really happy to continue doing that. But I never had a desire to have my own children. Um, and I yeah, it's I don't know. I just didn't have it. I was and I. It's- yeah, <laughs> it's taboo, isn't it? I, I know, I know you're like stumbling on words there, and I think it's because the societal pressure expects women to just want to naturally become mums and to want that thing. And it's funny because I had this conversation with my mum. I said, "Disney's got a lot to, you know, to play for this. You know, from a young child, you watch a Disney princess, um, just find the prince and get married, live happily ever after, and become a mum." Yeah, That's all D- she ever Disney, does. Disney um, can be blamed for a lot of our <laughs> childhood trauma, I think. But um, it was, and, you know, living in the Solomon Islands, I was 30 at the time. And so I was quite strange to the women that lived there because I didn't have children. Um, and so they, I'm still in touch with a lot of them and they were very excited when I became a mother, but they found it quite odd. I think a lot of them thought there was something wrong with me either mentally or physically, because I hadn't had children yet. Um, 30 was, you know, really old to not have children in the Solomon Islands, especially. Um, So, yeah, I mean, but the average age of a woman having her first baby in Australia is 31. So 
I got there yeah. in the nick of time for statistical reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I was a geriatric mum at 35. I've been working in education. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I worked with mums all day, every day because I had their children and they would either have two things to say, oh, you can't have children, you poor thing, because you've had cancer, or number two, you must be pretty selfish. You know, yeah. like it was one or the other. So it was a lot easier to take the path of, oh, well, we can't have kids, we've tried. Yeah. It, it was actually like that, but it was just, it felt easier. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny the selfish comments because um, I've encountered them with not wanting to have children and also yep. um, with not wanting to have more than one child. People um, classify you as selfish, which it's not. There's a lot of thought that goes into both of those decisions and it's, um, not just you that you think of. So, yeah, um, hopefully we can eradicate those comments. But I did have um, an obstetrician I worked with once when I was training to be a midwife. So I was really early 20s and I was saying how I never wanted children. And he was like, great, let's go and give you a hysterectomy now. Like, let's go cut it out on let's go. And I was and that was like really shocking to me. And I, I was like, I still want my uterus. Like, just, in, yeah. just because I don't want to use it for for making a child doesn't mean I don't want my uterus but he was kind of like well put your money where your mouth is and obviously you know he was right I ended up going on to have children but it was interesting that he was like well just get rid of that then because you don't need it it's like no I still need it I still want it thank you could you could you imagine saying I never want to get married and love someone I would just rip your heart out just like that that's ridiculous (laughs) it was really I mean yeah it was really interesting that he oh goodness i think about that a lot actually when he that he just came out with that like so quickly it's bizarre it is a bizarre thing to say (laughs) for sure oh look i think um look obviously i know a little bit about your journey and if you wouldn't mind sharing so from a from a pretty young age you have had a lot of experience with women's pelvic health personally uh right so i would love to be able to you know probably explore that a little bit more because i know on your website and things you've talked about incontinence from 19 which is 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 very young what was all of that what was that like for you to discover that um horrifying (laughs) it was it was horrific and i lived inside i suffered in silence really um for over a decade with it i never told anyone about it um you know i was a young fit intelligent woman and i wet my pants and you know and and society kind of portrays people wetting their pants as, um, you know, either babies or older people yeah. or people yeah. living with a disability that enables, that prevents them from, you know, having either control over their bladder or bowel or being able to go yeah. to the toilet. So were you... Um... Were you doing your marathon running at 19, I can imagine? Uh, no, I wasn't, actually. I was hiking a lot, so I'd hiked Kokoda. Oh, okay. uh, no, I hadn't even. No, I was living in America at that time. Um, yeah, right. So, no, I'd started running marathons and doing that kind of thing um, in my early to late 20s. Yeah, I got oh, a so lot after. More. Yeah, it was after. So how did, how did you know what it was then? Uh, how did I know that it was probably At 19, I probably wouldn't have given it the title incontinence. I just knew that I wet myself when I sneezed. And then I guess I learnt the terminology as I went into women's health. So I became 
a midwife when I was, I started midwifery when I was like 21 or something like that. I went into midwifery. Um, so yeah, I didn't, I probably wouldn't have called it incontinence back then. And I didn't see anyone about it. I didn't tell anyone. Um, oh, so you didn't have anyone to turn to at 19. You were must've felt pretty alone. Yeah, it wasn't that. And it wasn't that, um, frequent back then. So I suffer really badly from hay fever. And so it would just be during just, I love how we play it down. Um, it was during hay fever (laughs) season. So it became something that I associated with that, I guess. I didn't really give it a lot of thought because denial is a really powerful thing. So if you don't acknowledge a problem and you don't um, allow yourself to have it, then you don't have it. <laughs> so yeah. especially yeah, as a you know, young 20-year-old, I was like, whatever. And everything else was working fine. So I didn't have an issue, I guess. It's only now that I look back at it and go, I wish I'd done something about that then because, yeah, because I, and I wish I had gotten on to, and so many people with Core and Floor Restore, which is my business, come to me once they've got an issue. Um, and because we all think we're invincible. And so we all think it's not going to happen to us. And then when it does, it's a real head fuck. And it's horrible because you realize you're not invincible anymore. And I can remember the same thing, you know, when I broke my hand, I had a mountain biking accident. And I often think about that in relation to my prolapse, um, how similar the experiences are. Because as soon as it happened, I was like, I'm broken. I'm, I'm broken and this, can nev- this can't be repaired back to normal. And so I have this scarring on my hand. I'm missing a knuckle. My hand doesn't work as well as it did beforehand. Um, That's huge. It's this constant reminder of what happened. And I get pain and issues with it sometimes, not all the time. But yeah, it's okay. that, it was that whole, I've broken something now. I'm not invincible, this kind of, and I had a mortgage at the time. We had a foster child and I ended up having four months off work. And so the flow and effect and the um, lesson about consequences and what happens kind of really hit me. And I feel like I became an adult in that situation, that real, you know, realizing that your actions have consequences for not just you, but for your whole family and what that means for everybody in the family as well. It is huge. It is huge. Yeah. Yeah, right. And I feel like prolapse has been very similar, that kind of same path way. Yeah, yeah. I do want to to jump into prolapse. I want to dig deeper in in a minute, but I just, I'm thinking that the career you're in now, do you think that the passion for it kind of stemmed from your experiences at 19 with incontinence, wanting to help Mm. others? Uh, Maybe, maybe it was, maybe that was the foundation. I've never thought about it like that because I think what happened, my passion really came from my experiences in pregnancy with incontinence. So yes, it was there, but it wasn't until I was pregnant and the incontinence was horrific and all day, every day. And then my experiences postpartum when I actually got my pelvic floor functioning properly and able to lengthen and recoil when it needed to, that enabled, um, you know, that to that passion to kind of be driven and, and go born. through there. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think so, yeah, maybe the um, underlying kind of reasons yeah. were there, but not um, not something. Not consciously. 
Yeah, not consciously, but, and it wasn't really, even when I healed, you know, myself and be, and was in, able to be um, continent, so not incontinent for a good six to 12 months, um, it, I never thought about doing this for others. It was only until I started talking to women that my passion kind of grew. And so I started training women um, in what I had learnt and developed it into a course and then obviously it's grown from there and that's where the real passion came from because I, I kind of felt like I was the only one going through it. We all do, I think. Yeah. When it's, when because it's an we issue that's not it. talked about and prolapse, I, yeah. I get hundreds of messages from women every day around prolapse and we always feel like it, we're the only ones going through it. And so I've brought out a clothing rage recently and the whole idea of it is that we're never alone. Um, and so it doesn't really matter what I speak about on uh, social media, whether it's prolapse or co-sleeping or um, hemorrhoids or having to wipe your bum so much because there's so much poo there now when you know, you're not getting that yeah, good yeah. recoil around the anus and a nice clean wipe. I, I get hundreds of DMs and it's because women have always thought that they're alone in this issue. And then when I speak about it, they realize they're not. And so... I don't actually really like sharing a lot on social media, but the more you share, the more you heal. And so that's kind of what happened. I kind of just started teaching exercise classes going, if this, if you leak urine, then this is the way you should do a star jump. And if you've got a diastasis recti, then this is what you can do. And so I kind of just brought those issues into conversation. And as soon as I did, everyone was like, oh, me, oh, me, oh, me. I've got this and I've got that and I've got this. Everyone. As soon as you open it, you know, the floodgates just, it just, everyone starts talking and um I, i'm really proud of that i'm really proud that we're creating so you should a society of women who are able to speak more about issues that affect them every day and really debilitating issues you know yes the women would say to me i can now go down the street without being scared like that's huge yeah. if you can't yeah, yeah. go that's and get huge. some bread and milk without being scared that you're going to wet yourself like that affects your whole life you're not only not doing everyday things that you need to to survive but you're not doing things that you love that make you enjoy yeah. life and that's all to thrive yeah, yeah. and that's survive what is the point we're all dead at the end of this so we've got to be able to enjoy what we've got when yeah. we've got it but so many of those mums will rock up to their supermarket with you know, baby and a smile on their face going, yeah, I love this. This is awesome. But on the inside, they're dying on the inside. So what you just said was definitely uh, resonates with the Brave Mama community too. How as soon as you say something, they're like, oh yeah, that's me. But I don't tell anyone because no one can see it. So no, I don't think anyone. And to be fair, a lot of the times they go to get support in a medical profession or you know, uh, allied health and are told that it's in their head. Or they're told that it's not that bad. So then they think it's in their head. And then they, like you said, they deny, don't believe and just try and get on with it. Got to get on with it. Um, but yet on the inside are scared that they're going to wet their pants when they go to the supermarket. It's the horrible. amount of people that message me and say, my GP told me that everyone gets this and it's just normal. It's like, yeah. it's not normal. It's common, but it's not normal. And I think a lot of it that. comes from the fact that we don't, have enough knowledge and resources in this area so people healthcare professionals don't know the answer and so they dismiss it um yeah and 
hundred percent. I get it messages all the time and it's heartbreaking. Some of the things that people are told and they, and that stays with them forever as well. And they believe it and then they don't do anything about it. And then finally, yes. 10 years later, they might find something like what I'm doing and, and, you know, some good, better information and they start to feel like they can do something about it. But yeah, that's the power of social media is bringing people with the same issues together and they learn from each other and feel supported and connected, which is phenomenal that we have that. And I just think of all the women behind us, you know, in the last 60,000 years that have suffered with these kind of issues and never mentioned it. I mean, maybe they did because women were together more. So surely it was something, I don't know. I'm just, in every culture would be different be so interesting to be able to go back and look at that and whether that was you know because there was you know like the red tent or the women would get together and you'd talk about your periods but I don't it it would be interesting to look at and I've never maybe there is information I'm sure there is but you know when my mum my nonna told my mum about periods it was when my mum started to bleed and the information she got was this will happen every month wear this done don't ever speak to me about it again my mum wanted to make sure that didn't happen to me. And so she told me about periods beforehand um, and there was conversation about it, but it still wasn't anywhere near the detail that I needed. So I'm wondering yeah. if there was like before my nunna's time when women kind of hung yeah. out a bit more, whether it was more open and then we kind of lost it in a generation or two or whether... I believe. Yeah, I, and yeah, I, I, I think... really think that would be culturally dependent. You know, it would be different for every culture, but... I think 100%. that would be fascinating. Sorry, I just get sidetracked with my ideas. No, that's good. Look, I do want to, I because you, you've mentioned your program and I want to talk about that a little bit more because it's it's called Core and Floor Restore, right? Yeah. Good job. <laughs> and I, I know you've been um, working and obviously it come from lived experience, so you've done it yourself and you know that it's been beneficial to you. Um, who would you think would be kind of the target audience of women for that, for the, for the courses that, and types of things that you do? So I believe that Court and Flora Store is for everyone. We have a men's program as well yep. as programs that are targeted for women. Um, ideally, I would like people to have the knowledge of my programs preconceptionally. I would love 19-year-old B to have known what I know now. Um, Corn yes. Flora Store is about trying to maintain intra-abdominal pressure um, and work with your whole body. So pelvic floor health is not just about building bulk in the pelvic floor. We know that bulk alone is um, doesn't um heal pelvic organ prolapse or stop it and we know that we're not um this you know structural unit where everything works in a from up to down kind of force we are yeah, you know we, it's all connected it's all connected with the fascia and so there's um you know we, we move throughout uh, in a multi um multi-directional way and so core and floor has a fair bit of theory to it it's not just an exercise program and it tries to target everything uh throughout our day yeah so we get that understanding also people because i didn't realize that you did it for men as well so people actually get the knowledge and understanding as well as the practical yeah yeah so it's learning about your body how it works so we're all connected you can't 
I address one issue by looking at one muscle group. You have to look at the okay. body as a whole. And so pelvic floor health is related to how you move how throughout your day, not just exercises. So how we pick our babies up, how we put them into the car, how we go from how the couch to standing, how yeah. we, you know, and then it looks at a lot of things like muscle lengthening because our society is very obsessed with strength when it's actually not about strength, bulking. it's about balance. So we need, um, rather than muscle bulk in the pelvic floor, you need a muscle that can lengthen. Okay, so when we, for, so for example, let's look at the pelvic floor. When we yep. lift our leg up, when we squat, when we go from sitting to standing, when we poo, when we birth our children, we need our pelvic floor to lengthen. And then we need it to be able to recoil so um, and recoil back into its, you know, normal position, I guess. Is what, um, yep. It's probably not the best terminology for that, but we need it to recoil. And so our pelvic floor recoils around our anus after we poo. Yeah. So it lengthens to let the poo out. It recoils afterwards to enable yep. that us for the poo to leave our body and so people that have when they go to the toilet and they're constantly wiping poo away it's because that pelvic floor is not recoiling so well so it hasn't got that strength to do that as much um right the fact you know so when we birth our pelvic floor and i think a lot of people think the pelvic floor is just muscle muscle and it's not it's muscle connective tissue so fibrous tissue it's the fascia um it's not just you know, the muscle groups. Yeah, it's not just yeah. a hammock. And so um, it, it, we need to get into that fascia and that fascial release as well. And so when a lot of research now is coming out around the fact that um, a, a lot of tightness is causing um, issues. And too tight. Too tight, yeah. And tight fascia and then tight muscles. And so, you know, during childbirth, the pelvic floor um, including all the connective tissue lengthens by up to three and a half times its size, Huge. which is incredible. And then it recoils straight away to enable us to be able to stand within minutes or hours after we give birth. Like the fact that we can do that, like a human can exit our body and then yeah. we can just walk around is mind blowing. Like it's, it's phenomenal. It is phenomenal. And and the pelvic floor and the reproductive system is designed to be able to do that. But so much of what we do throughout our day-to-day -day life inhibits our body working correctly. And so we don't use okay. our bodies the way we're meant to. We're not meant to sit on chairs. Be when we were never meant to sit on chairs. We were meant to sit in a squat. Um you know, we're not meant to spend hours driving around. We're not meant to be hunched over at our shoulders with our shoulders <laughs> you up made me towards sit up straight our then. <laughs> yeah, up towards our ears on our phones all the time. Like we're going right back into that Homo sapien kind of gorilla posture. Yes, I feel like that. Yeah. And you <laughs> know, and that and knowing how our body is connected, so our jaw is heavily connected to our hips, our neck and shoulders and around are connected to our diaphragm and the diaphragm is connected to the pelvic floor so knowing all about that you know you can't you cannot address pelvic floor health by just doing kegels um and i love that yeah you just and said that well it's just Hallelujah. it drives me batshit crazy because people are just <laughs> like squeezing away at a muscle thinking it's going to solve their issues and it's not yep. and so Cora, do you know sorry oh sorry i was going to say do you know b um back in the very very early days when i realized i couldn't work anymore as a teacher 
I'd contacted the NDIS and said, can people with pelvic floor dysfunction get support? And they said yes, and they did this you know, hour-long intake call, took all my details, and they said, we'll send you a pack, and then you just need to attach all your medical reports, and then we'll assess it. I'm like, okay, fine, no problem. And then um, one day later, I got a phone call from a different woman who just said, look, do you know what, darling? Do you know what Kegels are? I'll spell that for you. Just do them, okay? Good luck, goodbye. And that was it. That was done. That's disgusting. <laughs> like how ridiculous. And I think a week later I received the pack with all the things that I had to send off. So they didn't even think to look at a medical report before making that decision. So I'm so glad you just said that Kegels are not um, the answer to your pelvic floor dysfunction. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you. pelvic floor muscle training is a part of it. It is a part of it. So learning how to contract and release properly, but more so learning how to do it um, with things. Yeah. So core and floor is really about retraining the brain to to get that body working better around specific tasks as well as building support for your body. So exercise is a beautiful way of addressing many different issues. And so quorum floor is trying to work on correctly aligning you because we know when we're in correct alignment, our body, especially our core, has a lot more strength. And so it will support us better in our movements. So 100%. we look at muscle lengthening, we look at um, posture, and then we use exercise to strengthen. And exercise is a beautiful tool for physical and mental health and i think that's and you know what i want to bring into this too is quorum floor is one piece of your recovery puzzle i'm anyone that tries to sell you something to that is going to be the be all and end all is just really playing a marketing game with you because it's it's not and we you know, I never want to see my program just brought at 2 a.m. and not done. That really upsets me. I never created core and floor to make money out of it. I created core and floor to give people education and I had to charge for it because it cost me a bomb to make. Um, oh, God, yeah. yeah Time-wise yeah. and financially. Right. Um, oh, and yeah. it still does because the reason I can answer 600 DMs a day is because people buy my program. So that enables me to spend time doing that but you know every message I answer I'm away from my children and my family so I I do want to be able to feed them (laughs) this is it this is the funny thing that I think women in this space have trouble with because you are working with a very vulnerable um, already disadvantaged unseen and unheard group of women that you don't want to feel like you're taking advantage of them by asking for money however this is something that I've learned Uh, from a mentor she said to me but if you don't then you can't keep helping you physically can't keep taking your family's money to help other people it it's not sustainable and when she kind of put it to me that way it sounds like exactly what you're explaining it's not that you 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 know you're disappointed because you need to be away from your kids to answer a message it's just that if you don't have the financial support to do that like be able to hire a babysitter today then it just can't keep going. And I think I'm so glad to hear that you're kind of working through that hurdle because so many women need your help and and need this program. And like it is only $99 and people have said to me, put the price up, put the price up. And and my biggest thing with Core and Floor is accessibility and wanting it to be accessible to people. But, um, you know, going back to, you know, having like, 
if anyone tries to sell you something saying that's going to fix all your issues, yeah, yeah. it's not because pelvic floor health is related to so many things. So for me, um, in, including your mind and trauma and um, that psychological aspect as well. So for me, I do acupuncture. I have Bowen to help release the fascia. I have an amazing osteopath. Um, and then I'm trying yes. to work through my shit because I know yeah. – that yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. and I don't see a psychologist at the moment I have in the past um, yep. but I know so I had no prolapse symptoms for a good couple of weeks there I was feeling amazing every time we go on holidays my prolapse symptoms go and we came home and I watched the wisdom of trauma I don't know if you've seen it it's a movie a documentary have you okay. seen it not yeah. yet, no. It's phenomenal. Um, and so um, I watched that the other day and basically it, we're all fucked. <laughs> so <laughs> everything we kind of experience in life, you know, stems from our childhood. And we're, you know, I'm a, oh, yeah. I'm a workaholic. I very easily could have been a common alcoholic or a drug addict, I think. But I very luckily chose work. Um, and so I love working. Um, I, I am addicted to achieving and high achieving. Um, and I can totally see that connection with what happened to things with, to me in my childhood and that. And so we watched that movie the other night and all this stuff kind of got brought up and straight away my jaw like locked. And I woke up the next Please. morning. Yeah. Hips were sore. Prolapse symptoms were back. And so I know okay. that I clench my pelvic floor when I'm stressed and when I'm anxious and so and then my prolapse symptoms are, are much more heavier around that time you can, you you know, can notice them yeah there's studies that the more bothered you are by your symptoms the more bothersome they become and so I think yep. a big thing around prolapse and a lot of what I deal with through social media is the head what I call the head fuckery around it um it's huge the, yeah, the looking at it all the time with the mirror. Like, I don't know how many times I say, please just put the mirror down. Like, and even the grade system, I really can't stand the grade system for prolapse. Oh, the one to four you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. How confusing is that? I'm anywhere between a two and a four. Depends who you ask, depends what report you got, depends who had their hand shoved up in there, calling it the abyss from someone who did a three and four day scan. It really depends. It's, it also depends on time of day and menstrual cycle yep. and yep. so many different things. Like, you know, I, I reckon mine would fluctuate anywhere from a one to a three, depending on what I'm going through. But And it depends on how you're assessed too. So, you know, you shouldn't just be assessed laying, laying down. You standing should be assessed up. standing up and doing things. So I have been assessed in the program. We filmed it and put it on as part of the program so people can actually watch it um oh, but good. uh picking up weights and squatting so my pelvic floor moves beautifully with me when i squat and when i lift weights and so that's something that because i know trained it. i can do confidently i'm not doing any further damage i'm not bearing down i've got good connection um and you know so many people with prolapse especially but other issues are so scared to do anything because they think it's going to make it worse and then they don't do anything yeah. and all of a sudden they've put on 20 kilos, they've got depression, their relationship has broken down or is about to break down and the flow-on effect is huge <laughs> and it all stems back to... that makes to, it worse anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's... Oh, I could talk about this with you for hours because there are so <laughs> many things that stem, like that feed into it and then, and then come from it. But... Um, yeah. 
So I love how you said that, you know, that your program is just one piece of the puzzle because you're so right. It's um, exercise is just one thing. I see a psychologist every month. I book it in at the start of the year because I, um, throughout the six years after the trauma, I tried to, I did it at first and then I was like, no, I'm okay and I'm not okay. I'm okay. So preemptively, we've just booked in a year in advance so that every month if I rock up and I'm okay, then we talk about something else, you know, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of other crap underneath that people haven't dealt with in their life that you could probably talk about. But then on the months when I'm not okay, it's just to make sure that that support is always there. The exercise is, it's it's a funny thing you say, because I know a lot of women, particularly like me who have bilateral avulsions with their prolapse, say that, well, if I can't do Kegels and it's not going to make it stronger because the muscle is torn off the bone, then what's the point? Well, the point is to me, and this is something I've learned through lived experience and through being educated, that doing something is better than nothing for all the other elements you just said. So building the strength on what is left, even if it is a little bit, but it's also the mental, it's also breathing, it's also the rest of your core that's sitting there waiting and your bum and your legs and your hips like it's getting your body to work at its best functional ability for you now um so you know it's like saying oh i don't know i can't think of an analogy because i'm sleep deprived i have a teething baby but there'd be a really great analogy and i'll think of it and i'll text it to you after yeah yeah it's all good i I know what you mean yeah you don't just not do one thing because of one time like and it's not obviously i'm not saying it's a tiny thing to have an avulsion but um you know there are lots of other muscles in your body that need that strengthening as does your mind um and yes. your and your spirit and your soul as well you know and so having a supportive structure around an injury is key you know yeah um, 100% to to being able to function at your best ability it may not be you may not be able to function at their how you want to and how you used to but you can still yes. be a better version of you well, yeah or just be the best you can be and some days it's pretty good and some days I can't get to the letterbox but then that acceptance of that too is a process it's a yes. process it's, it's a part of the <laughs> it's a part of the healing too the acceptance and so quorum floor very much teaches you how to modify and so I always say do you for today so some days I can hold a plank really well for a really long time and other days I'm doing a plank on the wall and it's about being able to listen to your body and I think that is something that we have really lost in our culture is our ability to listen to ourselves we've been taught from a very young age to just shut it down block it out keep quiet don't let anything surface and so band-aid on it yeah Yeah. and then you know when you're pregnant you're expected to be able to listen to your body and then with birth we teach people to be able to listen to their body and just go with the flow and connect but you've never you've not done that for 31 years how are you expected to do that now like that's not going to happen we're the only animal in the animal kingdom that ignores our instincts based on fear of what others will think which is huge the judgment fires yeah yes it's absolutely massive so we've trained ourselves to not listen to ourselves and then yeah here i am saying no you really need to and so that's a process in itself too i have people that message me because the program especially the pregnancy program it doesn't say do this at a certain time 
And we love instructions in our society. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Black and white. That's me. Yeah. Tell me what to do, when to do it. And it's like, well, this is your process. This is your character building while doing my program. You need to learn to be able to do what's right for you. Um, and it's often people having their first pregnancy, haven't had children yet. And, you know, because with parenthood, you really learn flexibility and being able to adapt. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, you know, and I think, and, and some people won't enjoy the program for that reason at the start. Um, but if you can work through that, then you're preparing yourself for both birth and postpartum. Yeah. I was going to say that that's a lot of unpacking of 31 years or 30 plus, whatever, however, before they've become pregnant. That's why I love that your idea that people have this post, um, Post pre-pregnancy, so before they're even pregnant, so they don't have to try and take in another, so they've already got that knowledge and skill leading into pregnancy is ideal. And I want to chat about that. So how do you think we can better support women, not just during birth, there's obviously some birth aspects. And as a midwife, you've had a lot of experience in this industry, in this field of caring for women. How do you think we can better support them? In what aspect in order to so in, prevent trauma in or? childbirth itself so in particular we've got women who are like you said they they can't listen to their bodies and that in particular was me when they said just listen to your instincts and i would be like hmm where thinking, are they <laughs> yeah hello instincts are you home can you what are you me? saying to me I, tell me when and where and i'll be there just let me know yeah. and those instincts never came yeah. and that's um it's scary when that happens because you don't really even know at the time so i'm i guess are there any ways that we can help women you know start to become in tune with their body so that they know what they're doing oh, it starts from childhood and how you're parented really it's how we parent our children to be able to safely experience emotions um you know and not teaching good emotions and bad emotions but being able to just feel what you're feeling and my son can say i'm feeling really angry because of this or this is making yeah. me feel frustrated great mate yeah you can feel frustrated but i'm still not going to give you that ice cream you know that we've talked today you've had a you know for example you've had a donut i understand that you're frustrated and you're sad that you're not having an ice cream but it's not something that we're going to have rather than just shut up or you know yeah yeah not going to have it that's the end of the story that's the end of it like we're constantly so yeah it comes from parenting um but in terms of supporting people in birth better it comes through education and support and knowledge and it is really hard to find a care provider that is right for you because we all have somebody that would be right for us, but we may not have access to them and we may not know what they need to be. So I am a different midwife depending on who I'm looking after. I try to cater myself to the person. So I'm not always the midwife I want to be or why I got into midwifery because that midwife will is only able to look after a very specific type of the population. You have to adapt yourself to that person. And I think a lot of care providers don't do that. Um, and I don't know any. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> As in from the women that I've spoken to, I particularly in that birth trauma space um, that we have those private conversations with, I, t I share the story of how my obstetrician, the second birth, 
um, after the first traumatic experience said to me, I think you should attempt another vaginal birth, even though I opt, I asked for a cesarean because I said, I don't want any more trauma to my vagina. I don't think I can deal with more prolapse or I you know, didn't think it could get any worse. And it was he that talked me through that with all the risks and benefits of not having a Caesar. When I share that with uh, particular care providers, they're like, oh, I can't believe he said that. Well, that's good because that's not common. So I think that that, um, you know, those two birthing sides of midwifery and obstetrics, that they're not quite besties and they have their own belief systems that are quite different, make it hard for women going in who have no idea that that even exists. Yeah, when you're pregnant, you enter a very political world. Yeah, but they don't know that. And they don't, don't know, know that. that. that most, most people don't even know what type of care they can get. And so they're in the hands of their GP. They get pregnant, they go to their GP, they do what their GP yeah. tells them. All their friends or family. I mean, we're getting better through social media, through being able to educate people. And I did a whole series of free antenatal education classes during COVID and that was probably one of the greatest gifts I could have given society because I gave them free knowledge and um, stuff that isn't even taught in a lot of um, birth spaces too. So knowledge, you know, we all know the saying knowledge is power. That's a big one. And then support. But we also have a huge responsibility as a society to have these type of discussions um, and to support our pregnant people coming up in the next generations um, and to teach them well. My, my son's attended a birth. That is one of the greatest gifts I could have ever have given him. I've normalized birth for him. It's a normal physiological event. And he was there shoving Vegemite toast in my mouth as I was pushing my second son out, like running <laughs> around going, ah, making like birthing noises. Um, he, we shower, we co, we co bathe pretty much every day. He knows what my vulva is. Um, yeah, he, so. he knows the body parts. He knows that I have a vulva. He knows I have a vagina. He knows that I wee out of a urethra and my urethra looks different to his because his is at the end of his penis. Just like yeah. he knows he's got 10 fingers and 10 toes and two arms and two and legs. And nose and an ankle. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, that is, we don't shy away from that. Before I had Aloysius, my second son, he saw me in the bathroom with blood. What's that? that's mommy's period. Like it's just normalized. And I know that will shock a lot of people, but if it's only taboo, if you make it like it's, and then, yeah. and, and children are curious creatures, but they're not, they want to know something and then it's done. They know it. Like they, and then, it's just yeah, you take away that. Yeah. If I hide it from him, it becomes this weird thing and it can become comical or scary or you know whatever way he interprets it i'm i explained to him what a bird is and what a tree is and all the rest of it yeah. so it it's just a normal thing for him and you know a lot of people the bathroom is a private space for them and that's you know they don't want their kids in there but then you have to think about how you're going to introduce those kind of conversations later on in life and so i am yes. sure i'm going to get lots of letters home from our school <laughs> as maybe, he starts maybe not. educating yeah, his peers on um <laughs> well maybe. it's probably i i feel like the shift is coming 
if it hasn't already landed for some families or a lot of families. I know that sometimes I've, I've even told my close circle of friends that, you know, my children know the difference between a vulva and a vagina. My daughter has both. And so she needs to know both. Just like my daughter, my son needs to know he has a penis and he has testicles and a scrotum. It's, it's equal. Like the woman doesn't have to be, my daughter doesn't have to be more ashamed and private than my son. My son likes to get his penis out whenever opportunity he can. But yet my daughter already knows that she's got to wear underpants. And it's just weird. Like it's weird how they already know at four and five that that's the way society works and we've got to try and unpack that. So, but yeah, I think um, I've said to my, you know, my close circle of women, oh yeah, Elsie knows what her vulva is. And I can feel, I can feel they're like, Oh, that's a bit yeah. weird. Because most you know of us didn't even know what a vulva was. And a lot of <laughs> people don't. I was just don't. about to say. <laughs> yeah. Like we've been referring to our vulva as our vagina for yes. decades. Like most people Forever. still don't know. I, I mean, people around me know because I use it just as much as I use the word arm and leg and mouth. But um, most people are still like, what's that? And even as a midwife. I didn't use the term vulva. I like it's only getting into the core and floor space that I've started to do that. So, but yeah, you're right. There is a real shriveled up prude, but that's what we've learned. And, you know, someone said to me once, because I often, I really, I try really hard to refer to people as pregnant people because I have transgender friends who want okay. to become pregnant and I sure. find it much easier to be inclusive. Um, it's not hard to be inclusive. So I try very hard to do that. And um, I've totally lost my train of thought now of what I was going to say. That's okay. It'll come back. No, I understand that. It's quite, a, that's quite a political thing in itself as well, isn't it? At the moment, it's a bit of a hot topic Oh, you that's know, right. I that's know, body. Yeah, so we were yeah. talking. I was talking about it with someone because it, it is a bit of a hot topic, and um, and someone said, you know, the to me that your first response to something is how you're trained through your culture and your society to react to it, mm-hmm. and then your second thoughts, like those ones that you have when you walk away and go, oh, hang on a second, well, maybe, maybe that's what you that's you that's what you believe okay and so when this kind of couple of years ago when people were like oh you need to use the term pregnant person i was part of the australian college of midwives for a long time and we fought really hard to have women put in um instead of the word patient or individual yes and so because midwifery tries really hard to move away from nursing and so we tried really hard to have the and we fought really hard for the term woman and midwife means with woman um and so originally I was like what why do we have to do this it's a woman's thing like I you know why is it another thing we're taking away from women and I had all you know those kind of thoughts and then I was like hang on a second I don't want to upset these people in my life that are transgender and if I can just use the word people that doesn't exclude anyone but if i use the word woman it does and so it's the same thing you know the way you when you're talking about stuff like the vulvas and your friends kind of had that initial (gasps) that's just how we were brought up but then if they go away and if you know now that you're thinking oh actually what do i actually think about if you give yourself that space to go what do i think um rather than what am i trained to think yeah people can kind of come to term most people are pretty progressive and open yeah and i think um that can of worms was definitely opened recently with moddy body how they've said um for people who bleed and they didn't say women because they're obviously their underpants are for people with periods yeah and they just 
they just couldn't win. Like one side of copying massive backlash from women saying it's just a women's issue and then another, the other half was saying, well, it's not inclusive and it's not fair. And I'm so glad they stood their ground. It's yeah. people. Yeah. It's humans. Yeah. I <laughs> love... You don't actually have to have... Yeah, Monty philosophy and their advertising is phenomenal. They are super progressive and I love what they're doing. And it just, it takes a few of us in these kind of, you know, we're in that transition stage where there's a couple of people yes. with their fires lit heading the way and the more people will come in. But we're also in a really volatile space at the moment in our life. This is, you know, Oh God, yeah. This is, Oh God, yeah. And we're, and we've got more to come. So, um yeah it's it's going to be interesting and I really I think if I can choose kindness and you know I may not like somebody else's opinion but I will never mock it because it's judge it. yeah. it's t- that would teach my children that opinions don't matter and that you can be unkind to people based on how they feel and that's not right and I you know, I make mistakes every day as a human, but I try really hard to model because our kids learn through observation. They don't learn from what they're told. And so if we can model that kindness and they pick up on every single conversation that you have in front of them. So trying just to... as you said that, I thought, oh God, my kids are doomed. All I've done is yell this morning. All I've done is say, for fuck's sake. <laughs> oh, my kids, you know, I, they hear that too. My son uses fucking contents much more than society would probably like him to. I tried to, I tried to whisper and I'm like, oh, fuck's sake, like that. And then like my son just goes, fuck's sake. And I'm like, oh God. You know, but you just get to the point where, Damn it, and goodness me, just don't cut it. You need a good fuck's sake. There's a lot of research behind swearing that it's good for us. So. <laughs> oh, gosh. Look, I know we've kind of gone off a little bit. Um, we've gone off a lot. But I- you had some really good questions that we probably need to get into. <laughs> I do. I do. I do because I know that um, for women, they really want to hear you speak, B, because you've got all this knowledge and understanding of pelvic floor and midwifery. Like it's such a, a bonus, you know, you're a bit of a package deal here. <laughs> I want to try and get all your knowledge into this episode. I do want to talk, and I know you and I have um, spoken many years ago when your first was just a little bubba, particularly around the birth trauma space, right? Because obviously midwifery, you've probably seen the good, the bad and everything in between when it comes to women birthing their babies. Um, I almost just said people and I got a bit stuck. Sorry. Yes. See, and I want to correct myself because I do. I I want to be inclusive as well, but it's something that I'm still learning. It's still new to me. It's a journey. And it's, yeah. 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 And I, yeah. So, all right. We'll start that one again. (laughs) People people who are birthing their babies, obviously you've seen um, everything in between. I think that, well, do you think that, you know, people who are pregnant and their partners, are there things that they can do? And I know you've talked about being educated, but are there things to try and minimize risk of trauma during childbirth, during vaginal childbirth? Trauma is... It depends on what kind of trauma you're talking about here because there are many definitions of trauma around Mm. birth. I firstly want to say that I feel like birth unfairly cops the blame for a lot of pelvic floor trauma, if we're going to be specific here with trauma. 
because it's because so for me I had chronic constipation as a child I was severely constipated I had hay fever okay my pelvic floor had damage to it well before I even became pregnant I exercised Uh incorrectly for a really long time so my pelvic floor sustained injury before I was pregnant I then had a pregnancy with hyperemesis. I vomited all day, every day. I've had two epic, epic births with no coach pushing, no episiotomy, no tearing. I've never torn. I've been intact twice. I have had no forceps or instrumentals. I have had epic births and I'm very, very grateful for those. I have pelvic floor damage because of the things that happened pre and post birth. So constipation, hay fever, exercise, hyperemesis, vomiting, coughing. I had, I truly felt my fascia tear during my second pregnancy with a cough. I had a cough for six weeks and I could feel it tearing. And, and I honestly believe that's what did the damage and made my prolapse symptomatic. I feel like I would have had a prolapse, between um, my se- I feel like I would have had a prolapse, but it was never diagnosed after my first birth. And I don't think it was the okay. birth that did it. I think it was the pregnancy and all the vomiting. So and the years leading up to it. Yeah. yeah. So I don't feel like everyone goes into birth and pregnancy and birth with a pel- perfect pelvic floor health. We can't. Our, the way we Good move point. and exercise and the way we poo damages our pelvic floor. You know, we're not meant to poo on a toilet with, with we're meant to poo in a squatting position because that enables the pelvic floor to lengthen properly. I think the amount of anxiety that is in rife in our society plays havoc on our pelvic floor. You know, so, you know, I can't say that pelvic floor is this huge, like addressing pelvic floor health is holistic and then issues are just one, created by one cause. You know, no, no one thing is the root of all issues. So, yes, for some people, um, especially those that have avulsion and um, have forceps and episiotomy, there will be damage to the pelvic floor including um, organs around it and, you know, like the clitoris. Like most people don't know when they have an episiotomy, it, it cuts into clitoral tissue. We only knew the st- know the structure of the clitoris from research that come out, came out in 2005. But prior to getting an episiotomy, you don't get asked, is it okay if I cut into your cl- clitoral tissue? You know, so there's no knowledge around those kind of interventions. So firstly, I th- I want to say that. I want to, I want to, yeah, I want to take the blame away from birth completely. Birth has is one aspect that creates trauma, but it is not the it is not the only thing. To the, the second, that's thing. actually such a light bulb moment for me. Thank you for showing that because I was like, as you were saying, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did triathlon before babies. I used to get constipated. I was super anxious. Okay, yeah, maybe you do know what I mean. Like it just gave me that food for thought that it wasn't. Obviously, forceps avulsion, yes, yeah. in birth, but potentially there might have been some underlying things there anyway. So you go into your birth with a pelvic floor that's not functioning correctly, yeah? So the pelvic floor, not just the muscle, but the fascia, the fibrous tissue has to lengthen and then recoil. If you go in with any type of pelvic floor dysfunction, which I'm going to say almost all of us do, 
to then walk away with no damage <laughs> is, you know, oh, like I don't, I hate the term unicorn, you know, people putting the term unicorn on everything these days, but you know, yeah, yeah. you are going to end up with some kind of dysfunction that you need to address. And hopefully it's not a prolapse where that, that issue is, um, you know, those symptoms will probably be with you, you know, at some point on and off for life. Um, but you know, I think education needs to come around that and then, and correcting that pelvic floor health and having optimal health in that. So, yeah, I mean, obviously preventing things like forceps and episiotomy and instrumental births and, you know, the way women push, we shouldn't be directed. We shouldn't be coaching women to push out a baby. Your uterus pushes the baby out. If you are bearing down for two hours or longer because your care provider is telling you to, that is a lot of strain on that pelvic floor before it then has to lengthen and then recoil for you to be able to stand up again. So, you know, the whole maternity care system needs to evolve and, and enable birthing people to be able to birth the way that we were physiologically meant to and the way we were put together. And it's not happening. Women are not, you know, are on their backs. They're, you know, if you're on your back, you're closing the space of your pelvis. And we may only be talking millimeters to centimeters, but that is huge when it comes to... Yeah ahead and how your baby fits through and then there's you know so much fear around the size of the baby the size of the baby is one tiny part compared to everything else that your labor and birth needs to work in order for you to birth that baby so look i could speak to you about this for like 20 hours straight and still not i feel like we need another episode just on birthing itself right (laughs) like the lead up the pregnancy i'd love to actually have that opportunity to talk about your pregnancy course because i still remember bernadette that when we first spoke all those years ago you said to me something like do you know the apple tree and the shake the the shake method i know i'm saying that wrong because it's so long ago the shake apples yeah shake apple i'm like what's that why don't i know that because i felt like i'd covered every book and every website and every bit of information that i've could get my hands on to do this labor yeah and I was like no what's that and I think wow that would have been so helpful so I feel like we need another whole entire episode specifically on because we train women around you know how to manage the pain like the pain has become this big factor the pain and the size of the baby I feel like that's all that matters in birth when it's not there's so we talk about the three p's so the power of contractions the passage which is your pelvis and then the passenger which is the baby and so there are so many different ways that you can approach all of those things to make sure they work as efficiently as possible I'm not saying that if you do everything in, in your power you're not going to end up with damage and obviously that depends on how your body has entered birth as well and um, the baby but, and yeah, yeah but also like your pelvic floor health and all the rest of it and you, you know that's why i'm a huge believer in having treatments like osteopathy and um, myofascial release and stuff like that in pregnancy to enable space like the more space we have and then just letting we're not meant to labor for 12 24 hours that's not that biologically does not make sense and so and you know and then it, with pushing and so i think our maternity care system fails birthing people every moment of every day and i think it has a lot to do with the trauma and not just pelvic floor trauma but then also emotional trauma that comes from birth and 
Oh, God, yeah. Wait, that I is a whole other something. episode too. <laughs> it is, and it's on the rise, and people say, are we just talking about it more? And I'm like, no, 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 I think it's happening more and more. Um, just like you said, the messages I get every day from women who have had some very similar, almost identical experiences to myself, and it feels like there's it's becoming more common. Yeah. And more, more we're, common. We're I don't back. know how... We're practicing more fear-based medicine because where that fear of litigation is rising um, and we've just totally forgotten about how the body works in labor and we're not addressing it. You know, this is a normal physiological event. It's not an issue that needs to be treated. And so we don't coach people, um, you know, other things. We could, yeah, I feel like I'm It's a can it. of worms. I get it. I, I totally get it. It can, it, it And it's does. something I'm obviously really passionate about because I've experienced the epicness, not just myself. Obviously, I've had two epic births, but I've been with plenty of people who have had amazing births. And so I know when you don't get one, what you're robbed of. Um, and yeah. you shouldn't be because birth should be the most empowering event of your entire life. And for most people, it isn't. And if we are sending you into motherhood with trauma, how does that then flow on to our society? What does that do for your relationship with your partner, your oh, relationship God, yeah. with your children, your partner's relationship with your kids, and then everything else? And so we need to, f- we need to fix birth. We need to, to yeah. Yeah. That's um that's a huge task and that definitely is something that Brave Mama wants to work on by the time my girl's ready, if she chooses to have a baby. You know, she's only five. So we've got a little while and I think it's gonna take that long to be honest. From from what I've learned already just in these past five years that it is very political, like we've said. It's also very emotive. People have their beliefs and they're very passionate about their beliefs. It's very hard for people to hear other people's perspectives. I mean, quite often, B, I'll share with you um, that many women who have said to me, if I had done this, this, this and this, I probably wouldn't have, ex- um, you know, in terms of that natural birth advocacy side of things, I wouldn't have experienced trauma. And I generally find those people who tell me that haven't had birth trauma. They've had amazing epic births. Like, and I love that, like yourself, they've had these empowered births and they, they've done all the techniques that they've learned and it's worked for them. And so, of course, they want to support women to do that. But we just are then dismissive of people who, who didn't get to have that. And I just find it, it's, it's, it's very complex. It's it is very, very complex. complex. And, that's, and same with pelvic floor health. And that's why, you know, I want to kind of shift, um, you know, because if people go into birth with fear, then that is going to have a flow-on effect um, with their experience and so we really need to understand pelvic floor health a a bit better and and not go into birth thinking that yeah going into birth being prepared as physically and mentally best we can is key yeah look i know you've answered this already because i know one of my questions was do you think we should be teaching our young girls more about their bodies and pelvic floor prior to pregnancy of course the answer is yes but and and teaching our girls about their anatomy what age do you think would be appropriate so for example this is for me selfishly my daughter's five at what age could i be talking to her about her pelvic floor function uh, i mean it's 
trying to bring it into everyday topics like so with um you know i know with in prep or kindergarten they're now starting to talk at like bring in sex education and all it involves is giving things the right terminology so calling it a vulva um but you know i teach like the all char method to be able to poo it's something that i teach and talk about a lot um and so you know you can bring that in so when you poo your pelvic floor lengthens it's a muscle in your body you know we talk if you're talking about other muscles with kids then bring in the pelvic floor as well you know it's that kind of thing because we don't we we need to normalize it and not have it as this thing that we fear or we're scared of either and so you know if we bring that agenda to it like if we're teaching our girls that because we're terrified that they're going to end up with issues then that's probably going to backfire because kids always you know go against what their parents are trying to teach them but you know what it's so true yeah, if it becomes a normal part of the conversation, so, you know, look at your arm muscles, that they're lifting this, you know, amazing thing. And then when they're on the toilet, you know, that you've got a muscle in there and it opens so that your poo can come out. How cool is that? It's just that kind of stuff, you know. Um, and and then... I needed trying... to hear that yesterday when she was stuck. <laughs> I was like, I was trying to get her to do the mooing like I do, which is probably similar to what you just said. I was like you know, put your hands here and make the noise and open your mouth. And she was yeah. doing it, but it was, and then I, felt, oh, I don't know, I felt really bad for her. I thought, am I, am I, like I said, am I teaching her too much? Is she going to go to school and start mooing in the toilet and then everyone laugh at her? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm not a fan of moo to poo because it doesn't involve the chart and the chart is the diaphragm pushing down, which is then that involuntary pushing and prevents the straining on the pelvic floor. So have a look at, ooh, cha. But um, the all chart, yeah. So the chart makes the diaphragm contract, and so you're not actually um, straining that pelvic floor. Okay, I will. I promise you, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> but yeah, if you're telling her to do it rather than showing her, so if she sees you do it, she'll she'll oh, learn. Yeah, so they'll learn more. She'll learn more about it. There was something that just came to my head though, and I've forgotten. Oh, postpartum brain really sucks. <laughs> it's all right, Mama. Take your time. It's you know what? Why you think of it, and then just jump in because I do want to ask you one more thing. So we've got all of our people listening today, and if they wanted to find out more about you know your your um, courses or the information that might be suitable for them, where could they find you? So Instagram, Corn Floor Restore, and then my website, just cornfloorrestore.com.au. Um, I'm not really that active on Facebook, but I do have a Facebook account too. But yeah, website and Instagram um, are pretty big. And then I do one-on-one consultations and I've started working into the birth debrief space as well. Um, I and saw that um, just yesterday, yeah. I think, and I thought, what a brilliant idea because you've got the knowledge, the background. It's It's like a multidisciplinary team in one person (laughs) but try because a lot of um the inability to connect with the pelvic floor if there's trauma there is huge so um the body goes nah or the brain goes nah i don't want to go there um and so people that have experienced birth trauma um often really struggle to connect to the muscles and so i've started to bring that in a because i'm a midwife and i can work through debriefing births and answering questions that people often have um but also because it is a it is another stage of healing as well. Where do I book in? Where do I go? <laughs> I go to the website. I, do, I reckon we need about eight hours and we just end up chatting. We need a, we need a weekend away. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. When the world opens up, let's do a retreat. Let's do a 
you know, post debrief retreat, I have probably a few hundred thousand women who would like to come. I've all, I, that's another thing I really want to do with core and floor is work into retreats because it's a lot of information to learn how your body works and to unlearn things. That's what I was going to say. It's come to me now. A big thing with girls um, is the sports that they play. And so gymnastics and dancing. And so if you're concerned about your your child, teaching them how to actually use their body properly is the best thing you can do for their pelvic floor. So we are not meant to suck our belly buttons in. So if you look at a gymnast before they go and do their routine, they suck that belly button into their um, spine bring themselves really trim and trot. And that doesn't allow for any like, um, dynamic movements in the body you're holding a pressurized unit really taut and so that puts a lot of pressure on the fascia and the muscles in like that downwards kind of movement and so that's the big thing with being able to control your intra-abdominal pressure with core and floor and so um like i danced my whole life that would have done huge damage to my belly floor always sucking in and holding it tight it doesn't allow for the flexibility and movement that our body needs. Um, And so choosing your children's sport carefully is key. You know, 28% of the athletes are incontinent and Olympus um, gymnasts are um, obviously the highest um wow i never knew that people that's a bonus there you go if you if you stay listening right to the end that's a major bonus (laughs) yeah so you know that that shows us that it's not just about strength these people you know are not moving their bodies correctly and they're not doing their bodies justice because they're the strongest people I've seen on telly during the Olympics, the gymnasts yeah. and, and the runners and, the, you know, like, it's, yeah. And it's you look cool. like there's videos of powerlifters, like, wetting themselves and they're lifting and people are encouraging them and encouraging them. And that's okay. It's normal to do that. No, that's not normal. Your body's not working correctly. And so, therefore, you should not be doing what you're doing. But, yeah, it's hard. You know, they'll be in a What an insightful life. chat. I really thank you. I love it. And I think we need to book in a fair few more, but we <laughs> might leave it there for today because I know you'll probably have your little one to get back to. And I, I just heard mine run out the door and kind of slam it open. And I'm like, okay. I've He's got telling a, yeah. me. I've got a consultation done. now, actually. So I do have to go. <laughs> oh, bless. Bernadette always has so much to offer. I absolutely love her passion for wanting to know more about how we can be doing better at supporting other women. And even though her programs I don't feel are overly expensive compared to the others on the market, she's still wanting to offer a special discount for our listeners. Just see below in the show notes with all of the links and discount codes. In our next episode, we're going to be sticking with the theme of women's bodies and pelvic floor exercises, health and fitness. Join us for our chat with Hayley Wildsmiths from Auckland Hyperpressives. Brave, mommy.